We are going to be continuing on right now in Genesis 35. So if you have a Bible there in your lap, and I hope you do, why don't you turn right now to Genesis chapter 35. I continue to be blessed. I continue to be amazed as we walk through the book of Genesis. I don't think, well, I'm, I'm sure that none of us, when we started Genesis a few months back, had any idea where we would be at this point in the world. And yet the word of God continues to be remarkably relevant. I may say that again this morning, remarkably relevant as he speaks to us. So listen to these first few verses of Genesis chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. We already read one passage from Isaiah earlier this morning. Here's a second one, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. There is no Savior besides me. I repeat again, the Lord says, there is no Savior besides me. God speaking, you will not find salvation anywhere else. You will not be saved from your distress from anywhere else. The world is in desperate need of a savior. As of this week, three billion people on the planet are in lockdown, quarantine, or under stay-at-home orders. I know I'm with you, I'm tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of the daily numbers. I'm tired of being told what's going on. I'm tired of every single conversation having to involve that, that horrific little word, coronavirus. I'm tired of it. But with three billion people, so coming up now on almost half the world's population, 7.7, 7.8 billion people right now, we're at three billion who are being told, stay in, lockdown, quarantine, don't go out. The world desperately needs a savior. And the real issue isn't even the virus. The central issue of the fear and the anxiety over COVID-19 is the fear of mortal death. That's the end fear. That's what people are looking at, wide-eyed and, and distressed. So the world is desperate for a savior. I Googled savior this week. Just curious what would come up. I often do that. I wonder what will come up. <laughs> and the Oxford Dictionary defines savior as, quote, a person who saves someone or something, especially a country or a cause, from danger, and one who is regarded with the veneration of a religious figure. Man, that falls short. 
that, that's the world definition of a savior, someone who saves a country from danger or a cause from danger and is venerated as a religious figure. My friends, it is not religious veneration. It's divine invitation. That's what a savior does. A savior doesn't stand up and say, I do this to be lauded and praised. A savior stands up and calls to people. And the savior is calling. Isaiah 55, verse three, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you the faithful mercies shown to David. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So let me redefine savior for you from the Oxford Dictionary and, and other uh, wonky definitions. The savior is the one who calls the lost to himself. The savior is the one who is calling his people to himself. Jeremiah knew this firsthand, learned this, understood it, cried it out to the people. All the people of Judea, of Judah, were facing a desperate blight of Babylon. Not a viral pestilence, but a vicious power. As the Babylonians were threatening now to come in and wipe out Judah and the Jewish people, if you know the story, they would eventually take them off into captivity. And Jeremiah stood as a lone voice of warning while all the other prophets were saying, it's all good, hang in there. As long as the temple's standing, we're fine. Jeremiah was saying, no, we are not fine because the Lord gave him a message to the people. In Jeremiah chapter two, verse one, it says the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You are following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? You see what God's doing here? Salvation, it's all about himself. He's calling the people to himself, asking what is the problem between us? In Jeremiah chapter three, over a couple of chapters, verse 11, the Lord said to me, faithless Israel, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord, I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers of, under every green tree, that's false gods, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you 
and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it will no longer come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will they be made, it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart." God calling his people back. He has been doing this for 4,000 years. He calls a people, they stray. He calls them back, they stray. He calls them back again, they stray. And he calls them back again. Even before the end of the first century, the brand new baby church had to be called back again. Revelation chapter two the Lord Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus, which was not only the church at Ephesus, but also representative of the entire church in the first century. And, and Jesus said, Revelation chapter two, verse two, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and your logos and campaigns. Okay, I added that in there. And that you cannot tolerate even evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Listen to what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And some might think of that as God coming in and removing the church lampstand or the church cross at the front of the chancel or some other element or ornament. Oh no, he's gonna take some object from us. When he says, I'm going to remove my lampstand, the lampstand speaks of his spirit. It is incredibly personal to the Lord. That is the real issue. Return to me as in returning to first love or you lose relationship. You lose my spirit. May we have the first love heart of, of David who cried out in, in his mess, Psalm 51 verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, literally, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Rick, are we in Genesis 35 or not? Where are you going with all this? I, I have turned a corner in the last few days just in considering all that God is doing and what's taking place. And even in reading the passage in Genesis 35 before us and recognizing, my friends, there is something divinely afoot in this season that God is calling his people back to himself. He is calling the lost of the world to himself calling a people back to himself. And by the way, I know that has dual implications for both the church and for Israel. For Israel, the Jewish people. 
are right now in the midst of all of this being called back to himself. Israel isolated in the Middle East. I may talk about that in a word bite this week. But here's the reality God is calling. Jesus is calling. Calling his people Israel. Calling his people the church back not to church. Not to religion. Not to more production. He is calling his people. He is calling you and me back to himself. And that's what God has been doing with Jacob for more than a decade in the story before us, issuing a callback, a callback. Not like actors going to a a second casting call or, or job applicants going in for a second interview. Definitely not like the cable company offering to call you back because you're number 89 in queue. The Lord is calling Jacob back to himself. The passage begins, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God has been calling Jacob back now for years, like I said, for at least a decade. Jacob, who was 20 years in Padan Aram, starts to make his way back and it's taking a long time to get to this point, to get to where we are in chapter 35. If you look back at Genesis chapter 31, verse three, the Lord said to Jacob at that time, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. Come on back, Jacob. In verse 13 of Genesis 31, he says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. Come on back, Jacob. Well, God called him, God invited him twice. And then in Genesis 32, we saw that Jacob wrestled with God through the night. That often happens when people are being called back. We hear the call and we start to wrestle and we start to fight and we push back and we struggle and we claim to be more than we are or think that we're less than we are and we struggle with the Lord. Well, Jacob did. And then in Genesis 33, Jacob reconciled with his brother Esau. That's also something that begins to happen as people are called back to the Lord. Reconciliation starts to take place in relationship even as we are being reconciled to God. But Jacob's faith, if you've been tracking this, you know, moved in slow motion. He he was exercising partial obedience over a period of at least a decade. He moved a total of 40 miles. 40 miles in 10 years. Now, I have sat in traffic in Seattle. I have sat in traffic in Southern California. It's never taken me a decade to go 40 miles. But from Peniel to Sukkot, 20 miles. And yet it took a long time. From Sukkot down to Shechem, where we are at the beginning of chapter 35, just 20 miles. And in that season of slow-moving partial obedience, as we saw midweek, things began to fall apart for Jacob. In Genesis 34, His daughter Dinah is raped by the prince of Shechem, a young man named Shechem. 
And so Jacob's sons, specifically Shimon and Levi, but I believe the others were involved in it as well, exacted brutal revenge. These two specifically went through the city and just slayed all the men. Well, how could they do that? They tricked them. If you read the story this week, they, they, they told them, look, we can't intermarry with you. We can't give you our daughter, Dinah. We can't be connected with you because you're uncircumcised. But if you became circumcised like us, we could make that happen. So all the men of Shechem stupidly got circumcised. And while they were incapacitated, Shimon and Levi go through the city and begin just murdering them all. They killed every male. They looted the city. They took all the flocks and herds. They captured every woman and child. So now that household of Jacob, the slaves of Jacob, the POWs now, I mean, this, this whole group now has become one massive entourage because of this horrible mess. And if you look back in Genesis chapter 34, verse 30, Jacob said to Shimon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed and all my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? So now you got family conflict, family dysfunction. You've got an entire people that have been conquered. It's a mess. Why? Partial obedience. Now I know I'm going over teaching before, but as I mentioned on Wednesday night, chapter 34 that tells that story is completely devoid of any mention of God. It is the only chapter in the entire narrative of the life of Jacob in the Bible that does not include any mention of God at all. Not his name, not his person, not his presence. You hear nothing about God in chapter 34. And how does God respond to a stinking story like this, to an absolute mess? What does God do? Genesis chapter 5, 35, verse 1, he calls Jacob back to himself. He invites Jacob to come home. He says, Jacob, come back to Bethel. That's amazing. That's, that's grace. That's amazing grace. It's what God does. Does your life stink? Does it seem odious to you? Does it seem too messed up? Too, too smelly for God to want to have anything to do with you? Some people actually convince themselves of that. I'm so much of a sinner, God wouldn't want me anyway. That's a lie from the enemy. It doesn't matter how messed up your life is or how far down to the bottom you've gone, if you will listen, God is calling you back to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, we read on Wednesday, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins, their failures against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Why? Because that's what he does. He reconciles. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. I say this morning, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you're walking in disobedience, if you're walking in partial obedience, if you don't even know God enough to give obedience, turn to Jesus, the Savior, 
and be reconciled. We have a song we sing that says, are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But again, in the passage before us, after all this mess, after all this slow motion, after this partial obedient life, God is still calling. He is still calling. And he calls Jacob back to himself. Chapter 35 now begins with the fourth time God has spoken to Jacob. This is now number four. The first two times were in dreams. The third time was down in the dust. And now he speaks directly. Verse one again, God said to Jacob, arise. Go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Talk about the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, fifth chances, six, 27th, 77 chance. The God of continual chances over and over and over calling Jacob, perhaps calling you back to himself again and again, he keeps calling. He calls patiently, he calls graciously. Second Peter 3.21 says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Guess who was moving more slowly than Jacob was over the last 10 years? God was. As Jacob moved in slow-mo faith, God was moving in slow patience, calling Jacob, to come back, to come home, to come to himself. Now I have to add to this with all the patience of God and the hundreds of thousands of chances that he continues to give again and again, please understand that time is running short. That the call is becoming, I believe, more insistent today, looking around and not only the virus, but world occurrences and global chaos today has everything to do with the fact that God is becoming more insistent. He's calling more loudly. Just like the Savior God insistently calling Jacob back to himself at Bethel. As we look at this, Bethel is interesting in the life of Jacob. In fact, you could also almost call it, you could almost call it Jacob's son because the reality is the faith life of Jacob orbits Bethel. Goes around Bethel. It is the focal point for Jacob in his life of God's promises made, God's promises kept at Bethel. It is the focal point of his presence remembered and his presence rejoined at Bethel. But we gotta drive this point home and if you hear nothing else, hear this today. Bethel is not about the place, it is about the person. The call back to Bethel is a call back to God, to the Savior himself. And suddenly here in chapter 35, after chapter 34's glaring omission of any mention of God, chapter 35 will now declare him 10 times. 
We will see the name of God 10 times, including the wonderful name El Shaddai, God Almighty, God All-Sufficient. And by the way, in addition to the 10 times that God's name is spoken, God's name is used, we see his name appear 11 more times in conjunction with other names, three of them. That is Bet-El, house of God. El Bet-El, that is God of the house of God. And Israel, that is struggler with God. The call back to Bet-El, the call back to the house of God is always a call back to God himself. All the way back in chapter 28, verse 15, God said to Jacob at that time, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. That is, he wasn't stuck at Bethel, but he says, I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Jacob awoke and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And at that time, he called that place, Luz was what it was called. He called it, he renamed it Bethel, house of God. Why? Because God was present. And the call back to Bethel is a call back to God himself. One of the things being asked right now, one of the questions that, that I hear from other believers and I'm seeing uh, put out online is, is, okay, so what are we supposed to do? We hear a call. We know that God is calling us back to himself. What are we supposed to do? Jacob and the text actually give us four practical responses. Even in a season of quarantine and lockdown, you may think, I can't even leave my house. What can I do? You can do four things. You can follow the pattern set forth here by Jacob and let the Lord teach us through his word how do we respond to the invitation to come back to God himself. Number one, put away foreign gods. Verse two begins, so Jacob said to all his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you. Now, thanks to the sacking of Shechem by Shimon and Levi, Jacob's company, his entourage, now has absorbed the women and the children of Shechem, and guess what? Along with all their idols. So they have all now become part of this large group of Jacob and they bring their idols with them. On top of that, whether Jacob yet knows it or not, Rachel is still packing her father's idols. The idols, you may recall that she stole from her father Laban, his household gods, they're called teraphim. She's still got those, plus there are other idols now pouring into the household of Jacob, little pocket-sized household gods, little handheld devices with no innate virtue but the power to distract. No internal value but the power to absorb the attention of the holder. And we've got little teraphim all over the place. Now, listen, I'm not just trying to rag on vital communication and the use of digital media. I know it's an easy target, I know we can all rag on it, but can I just encourage you as I myself have been encouraged as I looked at putting away the foreign gods, those foreign gods or anything that will distract me from my relationship with the Father, from time spent with God. How much time have you spent this week on your iPhone or on your cell phone 
and compare that to how much time have you spent talking to God? That itself is incredibly convicting for me. I wanna encourage you, put away your little devices, at least for a while, every day, to devote yourself to prayer. Just say, if I'm gonna be on my phone, if I'm gonna be on my computer, if I'm gonna be playing on my iPad, put it away to devote yourself to prayer. Put away the foreign gods. Put away the distractions. Put away the things that we are used to and rely on that we might turn back and rely on our Father. Take an intermission from the influx of incessant and, by the way, inadequate information. Inadequate information? You can read all the news headlines you want. You can keep up with the tracking of coronavirus and it is inadequate to what you need to be saved. The world is filled with inadequate information. Even as I showed you before, Googling Savior and coming out with that lame definition, it's inadequate. Run to the Lord. Seek the information that is adequate, that is more than adequate. What we need to know is the truth of God. To put away the foreign gods that right now lead us nowhere. Put away the device. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time in Bible reading that we can know the truth. This whole idea of putting away foreign gods is so vital, so significant, that later, after Jacob's season, God is gonna codify it in Torah law. Exodus chapter 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Why, is God afraid? Is he jealous? Does he think that another god is gonna replace him or overpower him? That's ridiculous. God says no other gods before me, not because there are any other gods that could come against him, but because any other following takes a person away from God, removes our attention from the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Gods, idols, and likenesses, anything that we trust before the living God, whether it's as big as the universe, oh, I'm trusting the universe to cover me on this one, lame. Or as small as an apple device, whatever we're trusting is an idol. Whatever we're following is a God. Whatever we are putting our faith in is a likeness at best. And this is such a recurring theme with God. At the same location, by the way, here at Shechem, where God again calls Jacob, come back to Bethel, at the same location of Shechem, over 400 years later, Joshua called the people back to God with almost the same words. He says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 23, now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. And then he says this, listen, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's the issue. Strange gods are anything that disincline my heart from Jesus. Rather, put away foreign gods and incline your heart to the Lord. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a return to first love. 
It's a response to the very call of God that we put away the foreign gods and we incline our hearts to Jesus. And by the way, if what you do inclines your heart to Jesus, makes you love and follow him more, do that. That's a good thing. If what I do disinclines me from following Jesus, not a good thing. Incline your heart to the Lord. By the way, down in verse four, if you just skip ahead a little bit, it says, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. Understand in the culture, it was more than idols and teraphim that that Canaanite culture was steeped in superstitious charms and amulets and trinkets and talisman, all kinds of little seductions that even made its way into the fashion. It was more about the fashion than it was, actually more about the, the faith and false gods hanging off their ears than it was about fashion. That's why they wore what they wore. I, I was thinking about that in Israel today, if you travel there, you go into all the little curio and gift shops and, and tourists love to, they want a little piece of Israel to take home with them. And one of the things that you see primary in the shops I've mentioned in the past, are what's called the Hamza hand. You see this all over the land of Israel, among God's people, Israel, the Hamza hand. What is it? It, it, It's a a five-fingered hand with an eye, an all-seeing eye right in the middle of it. It is a pagan idol. But you can pick it up at at a souvenir shop and bring it home as a souvenir of your trip to Israel. If any of you who have gone to Israel with us picked up one of those hands, let me just tell you, put away the foreign gods. We think, ah, it's just, it's just cute, it's not a big deal. Hosea chapter two, verse 13, God says, I will punish her, that is Israel, for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. That's the issue, forgetting God. To the very jewelry that the women of Canaan wore, it was all about turning away. It was all about superstition. It was always about, always about faith in other things. Put away your foreign gods. The jewelry of Canaan, so eagerly adopted by the people of Israel over the years, was more about the talisman than the trends. I, I love what Peter says later on, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. He says, your adornment must not be external. That is braiding the hair and the wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. And he's not saying that you can't dress up. He's not saying, ladies, that you can't look nice. He's saying, let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart. By the way, brothers, I know he's talking to the ladies there. We need to do the same thing. That our adornment would be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Why? Because the quiet spirit hears God. The quiet spirit hears God. In this season of shelter at home, are you allowing yourself quiet moments? Oh, the quiet's driving me crazy. Maybe you need to get a little crazy. (laughs) Time to quiet down because it's in the quiet that we learn 
to hear the Lord. You wanna hear him better? I hear this all the time. How do you hear God? I wanna hear God better. I don't know if I've ever heard God. You wanna hear the Lord? Put away your devices, sit down, shut up, and listen. Listen to the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Do we understand what he's done here with coronavirus, how he's used it? He has now called the world to full stop. Why? So that we could know. Psalm 46, 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. That's how that Psalm 46 ends, Selah. Think about that. Cease striving and know that I'm God. The Lord is with us. He is our stronghold. Think about that. Pause and be quiet. Now, someone might say, wait, Rick, you're, you're saying God is using coronavirus. You're saying, are you saying God bring coronavirus? He caused coronavirus? Possibly, because God can do that. I know that's hard for someone's, you know, theology light to comprehend. But for someone who says, wait, you're blaming God for coronavirus? Listen, I'm saying he's using it whether he's the one causing the calamity, and he does say, I am the one who causes calamity. But it's always for a reason. It's always on purpose. He causes calamity. He brings these things that we might run back to him. Again, under his shelter, he calls us back to himself. And specifically, Christians, listen, you have opportunity, I have opportunity right now to be quiet. You've been longing for that? Boy, I just wish I had some time in the day where I could sit down and pray, where I actually had time to read my Bible. A sister told me years ago, Rick, I'm so thankful that you have the time to study the Bible and teach us because we just don't have the time to do it ourselves. Well, guess what? In so many cases right now, you have the time. Are you gonna use it? Will you be quiet before the Lord? How many have longed for such a pause that we might hear the Lord calling? And this is not just Christian opportunism. Listen, it is a divine opportunity for salvation while there is still time. Put away the foreign gods. Put away the foreign gods. And Jacob said, and purify yourselves. That's the second thing you can do in this season. Purify yourselves. Purify yourselves, be sanctified, become pure. Jacob already understood when he told his family, when he told his family and this new entourage, he, he said, purify yourselves. He knew, and this is pre-Mosaic law, that the call of God required purification. That to come into the presence of a righteous God, you must be sanctified. You must become purified. And so he said, purify yourselves. How did they do that? Sit down in the lotus position and hum? No. You purify yourself. Well, there's one very easy way to do it. The Jews later on called it the mikvah. If a Jew was going up to temple, before they went up the steps and into the temple, they went down the steps into 
the mikvah bath, a full body submersion in water. As a symbol of purification, they would go down, dunk themselves, and come back out and then make their way up to temple to worship the Lord, having been ceremonially purified. Purify yourselves. The mikvah, Jesus later translated it for us, gave us a new beautiful symbol that we call baptism. In Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples, followers of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And it's remarkable to me that we have taken this beautiful thing called baptism, submersion, like the Jewish mikvah, purification head to toe, and in many cases turned it into sprinkling or sprinkling an infant that doesn't even know what's going on. Baptism, the word means to submerge. It is a symbol of purification. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21 says, since we have a great priest over the house of God, note that, over the Bet El, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean as they would sprinkle blood on the altar from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Purify yourselves. Now I know some of you are looking around the room right now going, um, so honey, are we supposed to fill up the tub? What, <laughs> what is he asking us to do here? Listen, if you've been baptized, if you have been immersed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then just like Jesus said to Peter, you're already clean. You can still be more sanctified, but you, you're already clean. But if you haven't been baptized, put it on the calendar, would you please? Or call, I will meet you here. I will get closer than six feet and violate that stay apart uh, order to baptize anyone who wants to get baptized. So call the church, we'll set it up, I'll meet you here, anytime during the week. Purify yourselves. I, I love the scene, it's the night of Jesus' betrayal, they're in the upper room and Jesus begins to wash the apostles' feet. John chapter 13, he comes to Peter and Peter says, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, see, right there, what I would have done is dump the bucket on Peter's head. But, but Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, he says to the apostles, but not all of you, referring to G Judas, who is about to betray him. But the apostles, at some point, and I wonder, I don't know, we don't see theologically, we don't see biblically where the apostles themselves were baptized. We know that they were, they had to be. We don't know if Jesus did that or if it came later, but the call to those who would come back to God is a call of purification. So how do I purify myself now other than filling up the tub and getting dunked? Listen, John 15, verse three, you are already clean, Jesus says, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Let that sink in. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. 
your word is truth. The truth that sanctifies, the truth that purifies. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives, which is a great encouragement, but it's not what he's talking about. He goes on and says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, how? By the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Purify yourself. Boy, is the world talking about purification right now. Hand washing, keeping it clean, wiping down countertops and door handles. and gotta, We gotta avoid this virus by staying clean. Cheryl and I were watching. We heard that there was a, a little live stream event with James Taylor. Some of you know me, you know I'm a big James Taylor fan. I've loved his music, uh, you know, for years and years. I do not agree with his politics, nor do I agree with his somewhat whoop, 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 out there view of the world and the universe. But hey, it, it was a live stream. We had a few minutes. We thought, well, let's, let's watch this. And we watched it. It was James Taylor and his wife, Kim, and their, and their boys. And their, it was a call-in uh, live stream where people would call, ask questions, and James would answer the questions right there. We thought this will be cool. We can, we can hear about songs he's written and, and some of the experiences he's had and it'll be fun to hear that. I kid you not, nine out of 10 calls, almost every single call was about coronavirus and what should we do? As though James Taylor, a musician, a great musician, amazing singer, great songwriter, but as if he would have the key to salvation, as if he was sometimes some some, some kind of savior guru? Come on, are, are you kidding me? And then he talked about, in his living room, hand washing, and then at the end of the video, he goes over to the sink, and he shows how to wash your hands. He says, if you sing happy birthday two times through, that's about how long you should be washing your hands. And I'm watching this thing thinking, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, the people are hanging on every word of a songwriter of an artist rather than the savior. Can I just, listen, in this season where hand-washing tips abound, I even saw a, a great little video of, of the Beatles, a little mock-up, a, a remake of I wanna hold your hand, I wanna wash my hands. I mean, we're hearing it everywhere. Here's a little heart-washing tip for you. Something you can do right now that has a purifying effect, even as Paul said, by the washing of water with the word, here's something you can do for purification. Read your Bible, but listen out loud. Out loud. Read it out loud. Are you one who, like me, for so many years of my life, not so much anymore, but as a younger man, I would read the Bible and I'd get about a paragraph in and I'd have no idea what I just read, so I'd go back and I'd read it again and then I'd reread it and reread it and just finally I'd close the Bible because I wasn't following? Read it out loud. Do you realize that has an amazing heart-washing effect? to read and to hear the word even as you read it. Why? Because Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You don't need to listen to me read scripture out loud. You read it out loud. It washes the heart. And something else we can do to purify ourselves in this season. 
where we're called to put away foreign gods and purify ourselves in preparation for the coming king, something else we can do is stop binging Netflix. Cut back on Amazon Prime or, or Hulu or whatever it is that you watch. Well, what should I do? If I, if I don't have my shows, what am I going to do? Sing? Binge on the word of God? Pray? And do these things aloud? Psalm 103 verse one says, I will sing of the loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Note that. You don't have to go out to do that. I will walk in my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes, a verse that should be on top of every one of our TVs. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fashion its grip on me. Man, purify yourselves with the washing of water with the word. Purify yourselves. Put away those things that are distracting. Purify yourselves. One more purification trip or, or, or tip. <laughs> love each other and love each other all the more. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, that is a Philadelphia love, fervently love one another from the heart. That is agape love. And in this season of global distress, one of the greatest things we can do to purify ourselves is to love each other with agape love. To serve one another through prayer, through phone calls, through interaction, and even in the integrity of our homes to love each other more because honestly, that's sometimes the hardest place to love each other at home, where we tend to rag on each other, make fun of each other, pick on each other. We let our hair down and sin comes out. Hey, move from family affection into agape love. Husbands and wives and children and parents, brothers and sisters, purify yourselves. Put away the foreign gods. God is calling us back to himself, so get purified. As Paul said in Galatians 3.27, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And speaking of clothing, the next thing Jacob says after put away the foreign gods and purify yourselves is number three, change your garments. We'll say, put on new clothes. Put on new clothes. Ephesians chapter four, Verse 21, Paul said, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You know what a lot of people do? They keep showing up at Bethel wearing nasty, stanky, ratty old garments. Hey, God takes me as I am. Yes, he does. He meets you right where you are right now. No matter how ratty and smelly you may be, he takes you just as you are, but he will not leave you that way. Put on new clothes. 
Change from the old clothes. It is time, church of the living God, it is time for a change to be a purified people wearing new garments. Jesus is calling. And in his remarkably relevant letter to Laodicea, which I believe represents an element of the church today, unfortunately, lukewarm Laodicea, Jesus wrote to them, Revelation 3.18, and he said, I advise you to buy from me, listen, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And yet people insist on wearing these raggy old clothes. And I'm not talking about where you buy your clothes, whether it's from, you know, a thrift store or Nordstrom. That's not the point. How are we clothing ourselves? Is it in righteousness? As Revelation 19 7 declares, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. How? It was given to her, so it doesn't come from you, it comes from him. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Put on new clothes. Or I love this verse, Isaiah 61, verse 10. We've referenced this many times. I will Rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. We're not talking about those trinkets of the teraphim. We're talking about the jewelry of God, a purified life. God is calling us back, put away the foreign gods. God is calling us back to the house of God. Purify yourselves, put on new clothes, and number four, praise God at the altar. Verse three, Jacob continues, he says, let us arise and go up to Bethel, up to the house of God, and I will make an altar there to God, who, listen, who answered me, in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. I absolutely, unequivocally believe God will answer his people in this day of our distress. I trust him for that. I know that will happen. Yeah, well, what, what would happen then if Pastor Rick got coronavirus and it took him out? I believe he will answer me in the day of my distress. His plan is so much bigger than this life, than what we think may or may not happen, than what we fear may or may not come. God will answer us in our distress and so we can praise God at the altar. It's one of the best things you can do in this season, especially as all the despair and the distress is coming across the airwaves. Man, praise God. Come before the Lord in your home in your prayer closet, in your heart, but out loud with thanksgiving and with praise about all that he has done. Thank him for what he's done in your life. Praise him for all that he is doing unseen, even in these days. You know, it was, it was common practice for the patriarchs to spontaneously build altars all over the land. Abraham did it, Isaac did it, Jacob did it. And these altars were all about Praise and worship and remembrance. 
But my friends, this one, the altar at Bethel, this is the only one that God himself commanded to be built. Of all the altars of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the one time God says, go back, come back to Bethel and build for me an altar there. Come back to the altar and worship me. Why? Because God needs our worship? No, because we need to worship. Because when we praise him, when we thank him, it changes everything in the heart. Psalm 147, verse one, says, praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and praise is becoming. That means it'll make you look better. Praise is in and of itself a beautifying thing. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So praise God at the altar. Put away your foreign gods. Just get rid of them. Set them aside for faith in the one true God. Purify yourselves. Either by taking that first step into the waters of baptism right now, or if you've done that and you're clean because of that, sanctify yourself in the truth. The word is truth. The washing of the water with the word. Purify yourselves. Put on new clothes. The robe of righteousness decked out in salvation that God has provided for us. And praise God at the altar. In these days of distress, God is calling. He's calling the lost and he's calling the found back to the house of God, back to himself. But notice one more thing, verse four. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, that is under the terebinth, which was near Shechem. Marvelous. Why? Trees in the Bible have a way of drawing our attention back to the centerpiece of all scripture. As Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The cross of Calvary. And the best way to bury everything from foreign gods to nasty old clothes is at the foot of the cross. We bury these things and put them away at the tree, at the cross of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus who died for us so that we can live for him and to him called back to Jesus himself. It's so interesting to me. Why does Jacob bury these idols? Well, it's perfect. They had no life in them. And what you do with things that have no life in them is you bury them. And by the way, not one teraphim trinket rose up from that burial place. But I'll tell you something, what happened at the tree, at the tree of the cross of Calvary? Listen to this, John 19, verse 41 says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Understand that picture. Jesus, who carried all the sin and the filth and the stink of all the world on his shoulders at the cross, dying to sin that we might live to God, was buried at the foot of the tree. 
And yet, and yet, John chapter 20, verse one says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone was already taken away from the tomb. You know what John's doing? He's assuming the resurrection. Now he'll describe Jesus resurrected after that, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already circulating. Everyone already knew that Jesus resurrected. The church already understood the stone was rolled away. And so John just says, when Mary got there, she already saw the stone rolled away. In other words, Jesus raised. The one who was buried at the tree is the only one. All the foreign gods stayed buried. The one true God, the Savior, he rose. And he ever lives, the Bible tells us, to make intercession, that is to pray for his people. Some say the, the tomb of Jesus is there today under the church of the holy smoke, uh, the holy sepulcher in Jerusalem. I call it that because if you go into the church of the holy sepulcher, the incense is intense. It's almost hard to breathe. It's just so thick with that smoky incense in there. It's dark and it's dank and it's depressing. And there's mourning going on for this crucified Jesus and the reality is he rose from the dead. When we talk about his death now, we proclaim it until he comes because he is alive. But some think that the, the tomb of Jesus is there beneath the church of the Holy Sepulchre, that that's where he was buried. Others lean toward a different location. I, I lean toward a different location. I think it's much more likely either the garden tomb or an undiscovered tomb nearby. But you know what? The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't say it's under the church of the Holy Sepulchre. It doesn't say it's over there under the garden tomb. The Bible doesn't tell us because it really doesn't matter because it's not about the place, Bethel. It's about the person, God himself. God is calling Jacob back to himself. God is calling Israel back to himself. Think about that historically and prophetically. God is calling Israel back to himself. But before he does that, you know what else the Bible tells us? <laughs> He'll call his church up. He will call us directly to himself. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. He will call us to himself. That's his promise. Are you ready? Are you ready? I know some hear that and they go, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to be caught up. I don't know if I'm ready to leave everything that I've ever known. Oh, trust me, it's gonna blow away anything you've ever experienced here. It will be a moment of joy like you have never known. And a future opening up before us where coronavirus has no hold, where death loses its sting, loses its victory because we have been resurrected in final resurrection to be with Jesus. Are you ready, having put away foreign gods, having been purified, having put on robes of righteousness and salvation and praising his goodness through these days of distress? The world needs a savior. And my friends, the savior is calling right now. The apostle Paul wrote in Titus chapter two, verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Would you pray with me? Father, your word to us is stirring in my heart. This calling back home, this calling back to the house, this calling back to you, Lord, to yourself, this very intimate and personal calling to come home to Jesus. And my prayer with this teaching and my prayer with our worship together is this would stir all of our hearts to follow Jacob's command to do these things, to put away the foreign gods, purify ourselves, put on the new clothes and praise you at the altar. May this season be defined by those actions and by this practical move of your people back to our God. May this season be a time where lost are found and people are called out of the despair and the distress of this world to God himself. Lord, we're asking you to do what none of us have the power to do. Oh, we can tell our friends, we can tell our family, we can share these things with neighbors, even by phone or, or email or text but you alone have the power to change a heart. And so Holy Spirit of the living God, we implore you, we appeal to you to be searching hearts worldwide and drawing people to God himself. Holy Spirit, lead people into relationship with you and those who have strayed back to relationship with you and those of the partially obedient back into relationship with you. We pray, call us to yourself. As I pray this this morning, if you are listening, and we say this every week, whether we're here gathered at the bridge or not, we say this every week. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have never been baptized, if you have never just offered your life back to him to follow him, in these days of distress, he's calling, now is the time. And I invite you to pray with me and start that journey right now. Would you pray Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. I believe that you went to the cross for me. I believe that you buried my sin at the cross and I believe that you rose from the dead and that I can rise to a new life with you. I believe that you are Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. And I ask you this morning to be my Lord and my Savior in Jesus' name, amen. Man, if you prayed that this morning, you have begun. Now put away foreign gods. Now purify yourself in waters of baptism, as I already told you. We'll meet you here. You can put on the new clothes, be clothed with Christ Jesus, and spend the rest of your days on earth and on into eternity praising God at the altar. 